Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with Susan Landers. Susan is a retired neonatologist, an author, and a speaker. She practiced full-time in the NICU for over 30 years and wrote a book about her experiences. It's called So Many Babies, My Life Balancing a Busy Medical Career and Motherhood. Susan is an expert in physician burnout, and she's also published over 30 peer-reviewed papers. In this podcast episode, we chat about her story of burnout, how she came to recognize it, and how she recovered from it, and found her voice, and continues now to empower the voices of other physicians um, on the front lines to find their fulfillment and to stay true to who they are. So grab your drink of choice, join us, you don't want to miss this episode. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. I wanted to chat with you about, you know, your experiences with burnout, your recovery, even more so from it, and, you know, showing up in our best selves for our personal relationships. Like we're, you know, as healthcare providers, we're trying to do it all. So yeah, I'm looking forward to to um, your experiences and your insights. So can you tell us first, though, a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I am a retired neonatologist. I practiced medicine in the NICU for 34 years, uh, full-time, while also raising three children. I'm married to a physician, and I was fortunate that he and I could share the stresses of our practices. He's a pediatric nephrologist. He didn't work quite as hard as (laughs) an ICU doctor did, but he was a great sounding board. You know, I had the first 16 years in academic medicine. I was on the faculty of two medical schools, 
And I did get promoted to associate professor at the second one, but my experience at the second medical school was not uh, healthy. Mm. And so we decided to leave that situation and move back to Texas, Austin, Texas, and go into private practice. So then I had 22 years in private practice in Austin, and both experiences were really wonderful, and they both require different strengths, different talents. I have great respect for academic physicians. I also have great respect for private practice physicians because they're really doing the work right there at the bedside by themselves. So I was really fortunate to get to experience both types of medicine. And I was glad that I always was in a practice where there were other women and there were men who appreciated what working mothers needed Mm. and men who appreciated how flexible scheduling was important. But I'll tell you, my first experience with burnout was I was in my 40s. And we had just moved to a new city. My my husband had the perfect job. He was a division chief. And I was just a regular neonatologist. We had three little kids. Uh, My baby was uh, six months old. I was still nursing. Mm -hmm. And I was running around doing everything for everybody. New schools, new house, new neighborhood, meet the coaches, meet the teachers get to know everyone and working too. Mm -hmm. And I slowly fell apart. Um, So here I was 41 or two years old, the three little kids, and I became clinically depressed. Mm. A friend of mine, a PICU doctor, pediatric ICU said, you really don't seem like yourself. And um, I have a friend you might want to talk to. And I talked to her friend, the psychiatrist, And he helped me sort through my priorities. I was guilty at that time of doing everything for everybody and nothing for me. I was achieving at work, achieving as a mother, achieving as a friend. Actually, that's not true. I had left my friends behind in another city. Mm. And I didn't take care of myself during this time. And so that burnout was not exactly about medicine. Mostly it was, but it was also about being a working mother. Mm -hmm. And as I sorted through my priorities, and as I started to take care of myself, we joined an athletic club and I went to work out at least twice a week. And they had childcare for the kids and sports programs. I started to get better. Then my relationship with my husband began to suffer because he was very happy in his job and I was not happy in mine. Mm -hmm. And we got to the point, Jennifer, where we said, we've got to do something to save our marriage and find jobs that we both like. Mm -hmm. And it took about a year. And we went on lots of dates and we had lots of honest conversations and we started talking about how we could both be happy Mm -hmm. in medicine and what it would take for us both to be happy in our practices. And that's when we made the decision, the major decision to leave academic medicine and go into private practice. I'm happy to say that when we moved to Austin, we both got great jobs. 
I joined a group of men who I had been fellows with in Houston years and years before. And here's another funny anecdote. They were all married to stay-at-home moms. And so I was the first woman that was in the group. And I and they like to start at seven in the morning. And I said, hey, guys, you know, after about six months, I said, it's really hard to get here by seven in the morning because I have to leave the house at 630, which means I don't see my kids before they go to school. And they kind of looked at me in this quizzical way. I said, could we maybe just start at eight, please just try it. And so they changed the schedule. We started at eight and several of them came up to me and said, this is great. I get to see my kids before I go to work. And it's really kind of nice. And thanks for suggesting that. So I, I braved the, um, the men group again and <laughs> asked about changing how we scheduled vacations. So I've always been a little bit of a uh, rule breaker kind of push. And they were tolerant of that. They were really wonderful and flexible and they let me help them change our practice into something that was more family friendly Mm -hmm. and then one of my senior partners stood up one day we were interviewing some new people for the for a role in our practice and he stood up and said I think we need another woman in the practice I think having a woman in the practice has brought some uh, good Good features, I think he said. I was floored and ecstatic. It was yeah. wonderful. Yeah, that is. And we hired another woman, and now the practice has ten men and nine women, and you know, a million nurse practitioners. And so my younger female partners like to give me credit for telling the men how to make a practice flexible and family friendly. I didn't do that all by myself, but I was willing to speak out about it and call out things that didn't work for people who had children or families. And they called out things that didn't work for other reasons. And I feel like we had for 22 years, a great practice together where we all contributed there were there were moments, you know, where people didn't get along. There were moments where babies who presented complex ethical issues might bring out the worst in us. Mm-hmm. So I was rocking along, working full time in the NICU for many years. And when I was 60 years old, I was still working about 50 hours a week, still taking night call. Well. Uh, we were considering covering a low-risk labor and delivery unit, and none of my partners wanted to do that. And I said, I'll volunteer. I'll go because it'll be easy, and I, and, and I can get a rest. And that was the time when I noticed my symptoms. Mm. When I was 60... Uh, one of my younger partners, who was in his 40s, looked at me at that meeting and he said, are you 60? My mom is 60. <laughs> I said, yes, yes, Mitch, I'm 60. That's why I'm so tired. Um, anyway, I noticed my symptoms of burnout. I was physically exhausted every day. I was emotionally overwhelmed. 
more than I had ever been before when the NICU was busy or challenging. I became very negative, very cynical. Oh my God. I've always been a little sarcastic, but I was really cynical. <laughs> and then the thing that was so weird, I dreaded going to work. My husband said, what is wrong with you? And I would sit and drink my coffee and say, I just don't want to go to work. I just don't feel like it. I, it's too much trouble. And when I went to work, after doing everything, if I was on call at night, get this, I would go into the call room and hide, hide away from other people. Mm. I always loved talking to the nurses and loved talking to the parents. And this was clearly different behavior. Mm -hmm. Then one day, one of my partners came up to me. We were dealing with a dad who really wanted everything done on his baby. And his baby had severe hemorrhages in his brain. Mm. And we were recommending comfort care. And the dad was wanting everything done. And my partner said, you don't seem like yourself. Have you lost your compassion? And I thought, my God, that is exactly, that is exactly what I was feeling and what had happened. And that's when, when my partner was courageous enough and personable enough to take me aside and say, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Have you lost your compassion? That's when I realized that I had all the symptoms of burnout. And so the switch to a lower risk delivery unit was great. I cut my hours back down to 35 a week, part-time. It was heaven. It was, I couldn't believe it. Having a whole day off a week or having an afternoon off was amazing. Wow. And when I went to that low risk delivery setting, I remembered how much I loved mothers and babies. You know, all the deliveries are normal, and every now and then there was a meconium stain baby. And we talked about breastfeeding, we talked about safe sleep, and it was just lovely. Grandparents were everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I started to feel better. I started to enjoy practicing, even though it wasn't difficult. It wasn't ICU. Right. And I started to, so I knew I was burnt out at that right. time. Yeah. And I was. Lucky that my practice let me work part-time. I got into psychotherapy and mm-hmm. talked to a therapist about all the issues. What had tipped me over the edge? Right. I started exercising a lot, four or five days a week. I started journaling. I had not done that before. I called up friends and we had lunches and we told stories and we laughed. Okay. And I picked up a hobby. Uh, I had always done cross-stitch, and I found that cross-stitch needlework was sort of meditative, so I picked that up, and that was helpful. And then I started taking piano lessons, and I'm not very musical. I'm not (laughs) musical at all, but the piano lessons were so fun because I worked so hard to try to learn everything, Mm -hmm. and when I was playing the piano or listening to piano music, my mind would just relax. Mm. I found that music, playing music was just a wonderful diversion from the stress that had overwhelmed me. So all those things together and working less hours and a different practice location allowed me to recover over a two-year period. 
Wow. And I have to tell you, it really took about two years. So it, you maintained it took me a, a long time. Yeah. So you continued to work though. I did. Uh, reduced I hours. To work, okay. Reduced hours, easier job. And I, oh, and I had another epiphany. You'll love this story. There was a code one afternoon. There was a mom who came in and the baby's little feet were hanging out of her vagina. So she obviously had a footling breach delivery. She was full term. So they whisked her back to the OR and the obstetrician tried to deliver the baby vaginally. And it took, wow, 12 minutes, I think, 11 or 12 minutes to get the baby out because the cervix had clamped down around the baby's head. I was so lucky. I had a NICU nurse there with me that day. I had a NICU respiratory therapist. We were all set up for a full code. She finally delivered the baby and the kid's heart rate was 80. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was completely limp and blue and oh purple gosh. and lifeless. The resuscitation went very well. And he responded very beautifully and was back to normal within 30 minutes. So we took him to the, NIC, to the unit, to the little intermediate care unit, and I talked to the parents and told him he was going to be okay. And then I was kind of walking down the hall, just kind of by myself. And you know what I noticed? I noticed that I felt like I was high. Mm. I felt like euphoric. I was on epinephrine, euphoric, definitely. Wow. And that's when I had an epiphany that the stress that I had tolerated in the NICU, and I loved the NICU, all those procedures and all that stress and all those emergency deliveries gave me repeated epinephrine surges. Hmm. And that's what fueled me during a lot of my practice. Hmm. And it was that afternoon that I realized that I might even be an epinephrine junkie of sorts. I mean, I love excitement. I love procedures. I love intubations. I love emergency deliveries. Mm -hmm. They were fun, but it was not until that particular code and my noticing how it felt for the next hour that I realized what I had experienced. Mm -hmm. And so the message there is that we all perceive and feel the stressors of our jobs. We all get pushed to the limit mm -hmm. and we're trained to work at that limit. And we're trained to do what we do and put the rest on the back burner and we press on. And that's what we're trained to do and that's what we're good at. But when you do that repeatedly, you don't realize that it's beating you down that the cortisol and the epinephrine and all the other neurotransmitter changes are working on us in a negative fashion. And so I think that for me, mm -hmm. the ICU contributed to burnout slowly over many years. I just can't even imagine how it would feel being in the pandemic on the front lines. Yeah. I was just going to ask you that being being a first responder, being yeah. in the in the ED, being an internist, family practice, pulmonary, they must have been brutally beaten during the pandemic. Yeah, I cannot imagine what they've been through. Same, like 
just listening to your story too, like dealing with one trauma after the other. And it's all, like you said, you were almost a, like a junkie, like it just propelled you. Right. But then, uh-huh. but then you yeah. were left, you were left behind until I was left it hit behind, you right. because I kind of found it interesting. If I understood you right, was that you kind of like things were kind of coming together. You felt pretty good. You, you opted, you volunteered to take um, a lesser stress role. And that's when your burnout hit. No, no, no. My burnout but, hit before. Before that? I was still okay. in the NICU. I was still oh, you were still doing the tilt. Oh, yeah. okay. My gotcha. burnout hit. I should have said burnout hit before, right when I turned 60. And maybe it had something to do with that birthday too. I don't know. Because, you know, you feel <laughs> kind of old when you turn 60. But no, I had burnout before. And I okay. was lucky that I could work less, change gotcha. my practice location, and do things to recover. And, you know, friends keep saying, you really had to do all those things. And I'm going, yeah, I really did. Mm-hmm. I had to have therapy. I had to have exercise. I had to journal. I had to play music. I had to have lunch with friends. I had to take care of myself because I had forgotten how to do that. It's so interesting because you had all of the signs of burnout, right? Like you had the, you also had exhaustion and yet, yes. you, you, and yet you found the time when it came to taking care of yourself to exercise and to, you know what I mean? It was like you yes. reallocated everything and it's not just necessarily a literal chronological type thing. It's more of like, where is your energy going? And exactly. you know, yeah, so you kind of were balancing the scales a little bit more towards yourself, which absolutely you know, after all those years. Yeah. So, the other the other thing that I wanted I don't want to diminish the emotional weight of difficult ethical cases in medicine. In my field, there are lots of things that pop up about parental choice and physician advice and quality of life and and sanctity of life. And I somehow let those ethical challenging, those particular cases, we had a few right around the end of my my full-time NICU career, and I kind of let them get to me Mm. instead of putting it somewhere else. And I can imagine that people who struggled through the pandemic felt huge ethical challenges huge ethical issues with all the crap that was going on with the anti-vaxxers and people, you know, bad-mouthing our public health recommendations. Mm-hmm. And, and you're on the front lines taking care of a patient, just doing the best you can to keep them alive. Yeah. And people actually did not appreciate what they were doing. Yeah, that must have really hurt. And and I think those ethical issues hurt us in a different way, in a different place. They hurt us in our core, I think. It's easy to, to say if you work too much, you get physically exhausted. But when you're emotionally overwhelmed, mm-hmm. that is something that is really, really wrong with yeah. practicing medicine. Right. And it's and you can't really like, you know, if you work at a brick and mortar, you can go there and you come home, right? But when it comes to the emotional side of things, you know, you see things everywhere around you, whether it's social media, whether it's conversations, whether it's, you know, protests outside, like, you know, you just see it everywhere. There's no escaping kind of people's views and their expressions of them. I I don't think 
I don't think we can completely armor ourselves against against them. So we have to find ways to to I guess minimize their impact as much as possible. But I think that awareness is so important because, like you said, I don't think we we realize how much of the emotional um, right burden that can cause, and especially over time. You know, I don't even work in the ICU. Like I work on an inpatient <laughs> rehab unit. I usually see people when they're more medically stable, and so I can't even imagine you know, being on, you know, the direct front lines in the ICU, in the ER, first responders, like the, the trauma mm. after trauma and, you know, talk about, you know, the um, the rushes and, and things like that. This is where I'm, I'm more concerned too about this. I don't want to say post-pandemic, but as we're kind, as things have slowed down a bit, right. I, I do worry about, or I am more concerned now about you know, people's well-being on the other side now, because they've, they've gotten through that rush, this big rush, but now what's left. um, And that's where I think we're seeing maybe, you know, burnout and and things like that rise, compassion, fatigue, PTSD, like suicide rates, like every, you know, Mm. all of that. It's horrible. 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 Yeah. You know, the other major symptom of my burnout was distinctly feeling that I was no longer making a difference. And I think that if physicians who are listening to this podcast feel like they have lost their sense of fulfillment, they've lost their sense of agency, that is a huge red flag. Any physician that feels like they're not making a difference has to get help, has to see a coach or see a therapist or call a hotline or talk to somebody available at your institution and just decompress because medicine should make us feel wonderful about what we do. What we do is the most special thing on the planet. We take care of patients. We make people well. We listen to all the crap and all the complaints and we plow through and we do a good job and we're trained to do that, but it feels really good. And that's why most of us stick with it. So for physicians who don't feel like they're making a difference, I implore you to get some help sorting through your issues. Is it the hours? Is it the practice location? Is it lack of self-care? Is it your manager or your administrator? Is it the awful medical record that plagues so many of us? Figure out what it is that is pushing you to the point of not feeling fulfilled because that is no way for anybody to practice, anybody to function. It feels so bad. I just implore people to get the help they need if they feel that way. Yeah, and I think my concern is uh, rather than doing that like or maybe having that that trusted colleague or a partner say to you you know you're not yourself or have you Mm -hmm. lost your compassion like I find Mm -hmm. that that was that's super like if you have that relationship there that's so um so helpful but my concern is 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 that people are that's why people are leaving the professions right is rather than dealing with maybe what they're going through which is pretty normal for what we've been through right as a collective right right right. now they're just maybe leaving because it maybe they just don't realize that there's a way back to it 
and you know that like listening to you just speak about that maybe a little emotional because um just just because of all all of the providers leaving I know that's probably not what they really wanted to do but felt that they had no other option in a lot of ways right so yeah I think you're probably right about that but that's so sad right that in order to feel better you have to leave medicine when you've been practicing for years um now, you know, this is not true if you're a resident and you're in the middle of your training and you're working really hard and you get burned out. That's a little different mm-hmm. than than the kind of burnout that one gets at, in the middle of or after a pandemic when you've been in practice for some number of years. Quitting medicine is a huge big deal. I mean, our identities as physicians, as healers mm-hmm. are crucial. Maybe I'm talking like a baby boomer here, but, you know, most physicians feel like what they do is part of who they are. Yeah. We really do. Yeah. Millennials, not so much anymore, but but I think if you're 40 and over, you probably still think that your work, your being a, a doctor is part of who you are as a person. At least I felt that way. My husband feels that way. Right. And I know I feel that way uh, as well as a physio and doing the work that I do. Um, It's what what gets me through the hard times as well. And again, my trusted colleagues too, who I work with, who, you know, and again, having those relationships there that support you through those tough times as well, I think is so helpful and friendships. Um, Looking back, Susan, um, at what you just shared, and, you know, if you look back now, what advice, you kind of spoke about it, about getting help if you really have lost a sense of efficacy and fulfillment. Um, but what advice, looking back, do you think could have maybe prevented or minimized your risk of burnout? Like, I find things are always more clear when we look back, right? right. So if you had to do, right. like, if you had to do part of that all over again, like, would, would there be something you would have changed to kind of minimize how bad it got? Yes, we had a meeting once, the whole practice, millennials, boomers, Gen Z, not Gen Z, Gen X, and we sat around a table and we talked about what we wanted from our practice, what we were getting from our practice, what the problems were, and it was facilitated by a person who drew out the issues, and that sort of conversation was very helpful. Mm-hmm. That was probably 10 years before I burned out. But I felt like I appreciated what my partner's issues were and, and likewise them for me. But I've been reading about what Stanford thinks physicians should do and imagining what if we actually asked each other once a year how we were doing? What if we took those little screening tools and checked it off and and then someone in our practice reviewed where we were as a group what if we actually use those tools to kind of keep tabs on ourselves as physicians mm-hmm. my group never did that in any structured way but i think it would be a great thing to do you know stanford says Appoint a wellness officer and have meetings and decide your values and your mission and that whole thing. And I can see a lot of people rolling their eyes. But but the notion of 
assessing yourself, assessing your partners, and really looking at that. I mean, what if the scores are terrible? Right. And you didn't know that everybody else in the room felt worse than you did because we're so good at hiding things. Totally. So I guess my my piece of advice would be we've got to talk about it. We've got to uh, measure it. We've got to say, okay, we know we're getting hammered and we're all adjusting to that in a different way. How can we measure it and how can we take make a change that will help us. Yeah, I, now, we're not I, going to change the system overnight, but it would be nice to know how we feel as a group, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I, I would totally sign up for that <laughs> myself. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I don't think I've uh, interviewed anybody yet who has done that. I think there was one person who talked about healthcare culture in Australia and when he was managing a, an allied health uh, team, that was something that they looked at was the culture. And I do think it is cultural too, for sure. Like a shift has to happen in order to get to that point as well. But and he said it was very hard to have some conversations, right? To hear what people really felt and that honesty. So um, like you said, we're so used to not um, expressing ourselves. So it's it's a big shift. Yeah. My husband was an administrator in his practice. And so his take on assessing where everybody is, is different. He valued, so he had 35 subspecialty pediatricians in his group. And they would have meetings where they would kind of, you know, throw mud at each other and talk about the issues and rag on each other and sort through what was really going on. And he told me he thought those sessions were very valuable because no one ever totally understood the perspective of a partner Mm -hmm. who might be in a different subspecialty. And he thought some meetings just dedicated to how people are feeling was a good use of time. You know, there's always going to be some person who's crotchety and says, I'm not going to go to a meeting where we talk about our feelings and (laughs) miss an extra hour being at home. But as an administrator, his feedback was that most of the people in his practice benefited from hearing what other people thought and the solutions that other people had found for irritants in the system. Mm -hmm. We all have irritants in our system. We all hate the electronic medical record. Some people do a better job getting around that and managing Mm -hmm. that. Some people use their helpers better than other people do. And so he said there was a lot to be learned from that shared experience. So maybe physicians need to do more of that too. Yeah, I love that. And that, um, like that connection, but also that maybe mentorship a little bit too. And uh, so you're recognizing both maybe where you struggle, but also where your strengths are. And so maybe receiving support, but also giving support, like, you know, so like, to me, it just like, that's the kind of meeting that. I would like to be a part of, right? Like I could speak to that, um, you know, because I find in healthcare, everything is still so task focused right now. And um, yeah. it's just getting through the tasks and we got to do what we got to do, but then we, we don't really communicate around how we are. And, no. you know, we're just, you know, to the other up. thing that's so crucial, our culture does not um, teach us 
to talk to our associates and our partners about how they're doing. Mm-hmm. Our culture in general, in the States for sure, teaches us to shut up and do the work. And if you're worried about somebody, you might say something to them, but you're not going to push them. And so I think back to that partner who said, have you lost your compassion? He was so brave because he mm-hmm. probably knew I was going to turn around and bite his head off. Right. But <laughs> He helped me figure out what was wrong. And so I think physicians are going to have to learn to say to each other, I'm kind of worried about you. Can we sit and talk? Can we go get a coffee or something? You seem to be kind of really wrung out, really overworked, really overwhelmed. Maybe we need to reach out to each other more. I'm probably just feeling like an old grandmother, but. no, it's I true. don't think I don't think that we're touching our colleagues and asking our colleagues how they're doing enough. Yeah, I've always um, said this, and I've always felt that exactly like he he invited you in to the conversation. Like you didn't go to him and say, "I'm not well." And I find that we don't do that if we're not, well. we don't tell people that we're not doing well, but if someone asks us, it's different, right? Like then maybe, you know, maybe that, that opens the conversation a little bit more. So like you said, I love how you said, you know, asking how someone, how how they're doing and offering to go out for a coffee or a drink and just talk about them. I think that's like a a really big invitation. And, um, and that's why, again, burnout we know it's at different levels but organizationally like again you that's where that invitation i think needs to come into play as well like having those meetings right right? it's an invitation for everybody to speak we don't necessarily as providers expect everyone have the answers like we don't (laughs) we don't expect to solve the systems issues but we at least have to talk about it and and talk about how we're doing and i think share support exactly exactly because a lot of our issues are with administration and with management as physicians work for healthcare organizations they're relinquishing a lot of the control and that also contributes to our feeling burnout because we feel like we're not in control and so if we don't team up together and keep each other healthy we're not going to make a difference oh I have to tell you a cute anecdote I heard (laughs) Um, I was talking to the Texas Pediatric Society about burnout And one of the older pediatricians came up to me and he said, that was a great talk. But here's the thing. If the canaries in the coal mine are dying, you don't teach the canaries how to be resilient. I said, that's powerful. Yes. So brilliant. It's the coal mine. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just good old canaries doing our job and it's the coal mine that's the problem and we do need the administrator's ear we do have to team up and go tell them how we want it to be better how we want to fix it right so someone like yourself who's used their voice throughout your whole career like you've you've always like put your hand up and have spoken you know in a room full of men like which is amazing um how do you think <laughs> how would you like a you know speaking to a physician or speaking to a frontline staff how would you um, encourage them or recommend that they collaborate or try to get the attention of their administrators their organization in a way that's 
collaborative in a way that, yeah. you know, sincerely cares about them as well. I know they have it hard too. Right. So, right. and I right. don't understand that side of things because I'm on the front line, but just speaking hypothetically, like what, what would you, yeah. What would you do and how, how would you approach I, that if you were there now? Yeah. If I was there now, I would say the average practitioner inpatient, outpatient, whatever, mm-hmm. ha- would preferentially involve their manager or their administrator, their direct supervisor. And this wouldn't work if you're the head of your practice. Right. It would be you. And mm-hmm. that together, you would present one or two issues to the higher level administrator, mm-hmm. that you were together on it and it represented what other people in the practice thought. And so it wasn't just me being whiny, me being a loudmouth. It was me and my medical director. And we all agreed that this was the problem. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to do huddles in the NICU every morning because it took an extra hour out of our day. We already knew what was going on. We we could tell the nurses what was going on in a different way, mm-hmm. but they're, dif- they're different issues. It's really about how your system works, how your office works, how your inpatient unit works, how the ICU works. And the only people who know that are us. Right. And so us and our director, us and our immediate supervisor have to be the voice to the administrators who are very often business people. They're not always physicians. Mm-hmm. And I don't think business people think like we do. I know my husband complained about that all the time. He was always going to the business people, telling them practice needed. And they were always saying, no, you can't have that. And he would have to present all of this stuff to get things done. But he was kind of a squeaky wheel kind of person too. And by going to them and by laying out data and by showing them the money and showing them the patients and talking about it, he was able to get programs developed that they wanted to do. Mm. And so my watching him taught me that if we don't ask for it, they're not going to give it to us. Mm. I think that sometimes we just shut up and do our work and don't say, this is outrageous. You can't do this. As physicians, we're going to have to make a stand about some of these issues. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. You're right. Like, yeah. Wow. That kind of hit me there. I have a question for you. I'm just thinking because you're a physician, do you think that because everyone kind of works under the physician, right? Right, (laughs) You know, as a frontline worker, do you think physicians have more, I don't know if the word power is right or influence on these types of changes that could happen more so than someone like myself, who's like a physio? Um, Or do you think we all kind of have equal equal influence because the physicians kind of like in terms of like they oversee a lot of uh, the care, right? So we're, we're kind mm-hmm. of going back and forth with physicians and, and communicating medically and things like that. So I just kind of wondered, like, is the physician voice, does it, does it have a little more weight than maybe someone like myself or does it depend think, on the. Yeah, it probably depends on the specialty area. Yeah. But I see physicians as team leaders. Me too. And totally uh, not incompetent, but ineffective without their team. Mm -hmm. 
And I always thought that the physician would empower the other members of the team, whether it's a nurse or a therapist or a social worker or con- consultant. You're mediating and moderating all of the players that provide care in your area. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I do think physicians have a little more power. But if we don't go to administrators and healthcare business uh, or organizational business leaders, we're not going to be heard. We have to state what's going on and what we need to make the system better. If we're the canaries that are dying, we've got to tell them what's wrong with the coal mine. We can't just make ourselves better. Mm-hmm. So I love that analogy that that whole pediatrician yeah. told me. It's, it's brilliant. So perfect. <laughs> it is. It's so true. And it just picture like it paints the, the whole situation beautifully. It summarizes yeah. it so, so well. So within any practice, there's probably a person who's got the loudest voice or who has the most power. We all know who it is. The owner of the practice, the senior member, the um, medical director, the uh, whatever. That person has to be part of asking for the solution. Love that. But Love individual that. physicians can enlist that person to, to talk to those administrators. Yeah. Wow. I believe. Yeah. I can to- and I can totally see that too. What are some like now, and I mean, you're not practicing anymore, right? You're retired, but I'm still, I'm sure that you're still somewhat in it. <laughs> I can't see you completely out of it myself, just listening to you speak um, and your vast experience. But um, what are some non-negotiable now, like self-care practices? So we, you know, it's one thing to be in a system, right? And it's one thing to have those challenges, but we still do where we can have to take care of ourselves. And and you saw that in your your own personal experience. So yeah, what kind of non-negotiable self-care practices that you, you say, like, these were fundamental to my to my resilience, to my, yeah, my, your ability to stay in your practice, really. Right. Um, clearly, the number of hours you work, if you're working 60 hours or more a week, you're headed for trouble. For, I mean, I remember working 80 hours a week if somebody was away on vacation. It was crazy. So the number of hours you work has to be somewhat under control. The number of patients you see the number of patients you see per hour. Those sorts of things have to be more in our control. Exercise is on the top of my list. If I didn't have some way to exercise, to get out in nature, to do something that made me sweat, I would become moody and in a bad mood or depressed or or unhappy. And I think exercise for me, people, is the best mood lifter there is. There are uh, there are other kinds of you know self help that physicians can use. Music was a great one for me. The other thing I heard this tip from a guy who talks about physician burnout. He said when you look at your schedule for the week, make your schedule out however many hours you're working. He was an office practitioner, a family practice. He said, put one hour in your week for spontaneity. And I went, Mm. what? What's that? Mm. He said, no, that's just one hour. And when that hour comes up, you decide you can do anything you want. 
You can go have a coffee. You can go take a walk. You can call your wife. You can uh, go visit your kid at school. Whatever you want to do, be spontaneous. That what we do as physicians is we're so scheduled and we see patients and we do this and we do that and we're so task-oriented that one hour of spontaneity is illuminating. Mm -hmm. And so I never tried that when I was practicing, but I love that idea. And maybe some of your listeners might be able to schedule spontaneity Mm -hmm. into their work week. Yeah, no one's actually really suggested that specifically, but but for for them to suggest just one hour a week speaks to the rigidity of your scheduling and like like you know what I'm saying because uh you know like that's one hour a week of that I just yeah it's I don't think it's enough and I think once you do it you probably would want more of it too right well um, let's assume that you've got three two hour blocks for exercise so that's six hours. <laughs> Yeah. And then so maybe that would be the seventh hour and that would make more sense. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. It's, yeah. just, it's just the notion of having freedom, yeah. not being tied to your work. We're so tied to our work that we need to give ourselves a break. And working less hours is a way to give ourselves a break. And some of us are going to have to accept less money because that's what seeing fewer patients means. Again, the right. business guys don't get that, but they're yep. not in they're not cranking patients like we are. Yeah. And so we may have to see fewer patients and make a little less money to feel better. Yeah, and I mean that sounds like a, a fair compromise. Um and you could always build things up, right? Like, you know, sometimes think it's harder to cut back when you've been so in it or when you've reached burnout and you know, you're, you're not yourself anymore. Like you're so lost in it. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. So I see there's a book over your shoulder there. So many babies. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book? When I retired in 2016, I wrote uh, so many babies, my life balancing a medical career and motherhood. I told stories about NICU patients and their parents who I had found inspiring, courageous, who had taught me lessons over the 30 some odd years. And I was telling my girlfriends in book club about this notion of telling NICU stories. And they said, why don't you put in your motherhood stuff too? You know, all the issues that you had. And so I ended up going back and weaving my motherhood challenges together with my NICU stories. And so it's sort of an anthology of how we get all mixed up as working mothers and doctors or other kind of providers. A lot of nurses like it. They've read it too. And so my book is a reassuring testimony to working mothers that we all have challenges We all try to be a good worker and also be a good mother. We all want to do the best we can for our kids, but it's really hard. You're leaving your kids with someone else and you're going into work and be a doctor. And so the message in my book is that you can do it, but it's difficult. And I want other working mothers to know that what we do is difficult when we have children and when we work. So, so many babies 
is about the NICU stories. And it's also about my three too. So <laughs> That's beautiful and brilliant because I think we think it looks easy and it's, you know, nobody talks about how hard it really is. Um, I know. You know, so. Um, yeah. I had mothers of patients say, oh, you're a pediatrician. Your children are probably perfect. I'm going, are you kidding? I guess you're <laughs> yeah. not perfect. You're raised by two crazy doctors, you know, so there's no way. And, uh, and and they said, really, you have trouble with this, that, or the other thing? And I would tell stories and they would go, oh, I'm so glad you told me that. <laughs> because we all think everybody's doing a better job than we are. Right. Especially and the doctor. True. We're, yeah. I know, the doctor. It, we're all struggling. We're all trying to do the best we can. And we need to give ourselves a little grace. I love that. Um, one final piece of advice. A moment, like at the beginning of the podcast, you, which I totally related to, you said, you know, we identify as healers. Like we, that's who part of who we are is what we do. And then you also mentioned that we, you know, we sh also shouldn't be tied to our work too much. So, what what words of advice or inspiration can you leave us with to kind of find that where, if we do cut back on our hours, that we're still who we're still dedicated to our calling, right? It's still a part of who we are as healers, right? I think sometimes we, we, we mix up productivity and things like that and, and outcomes with, you know, our identity. Um, so can you, can you just shed a little bit of inspiration? I was never very good at feeling like a full tilt natologist. Uh, if I was working 75%, I cut back to 75% when one of my daughters had some trouble, but the cutback was necessary and it allowed me to get her the help she needed. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who's a general pediatrician. She worked for us as a hospitalist seeing newborns for a while. And then she said, okay, I'm jumping ship. I'm going to start my own practice. I said, oh, you'll be great. We'll send all our babies to you. And she has been working three days a week for about 10 or 12 years now. And I, I've said to her several times, are you okay? That's just such an easy life. And she said, I don't think it's easy. You know, she has two boys. Her husband is a professional. I said, are you really happy working three days a week? And she said, yeah, you know, they're 12 hour days. So it works out to be 36 to 40 hours. And the more I think about it, the more she may be right. Hmm. that your sense of fulfillment probably comes from what you do and how you're making a difference more than how much you work. Yeah, I, I was never very good at that. I was always a workaholic. But she showed me that you can be a caring, competent, compassionate, successful physician only working three days a week. So each of us has to find our own definition of what feels right. Mm -hmm. Kind of what our own guess, sweet spot is. I guess is. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, we each need to find our prescription for yeah. feeling fulfilled. Because that's, that's the icing on the cake. Do we feel like healers? Are we fulfilled as physicians? Yeah. Love that. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for being here, Susan. Where can people connect with you, follow you, reach out, um, or even buy your book? Oh, thanks. Um, my website is susanlandersmd.com. 
And uh, the book is there. I have a blog there, lots of resources. I'm on Instagram, Dr. Susan Landers. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. So anybody that has questions, I'm happy to talk to. I feel like I'm sort of the wise old retired woman. (laughs) (laughs) I would say wise for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm still in it. I'm still in it. I can see that. I feel that. I'm so passionate about burnout and I just want physicians to be okay because what we do is so important and it breaks my heart that people want to quit medicine or feel like they have to quit to be okay. So find me on my website and you can go anywhere else from there. Beautiful. Thank you so, so much for being here. I appreciate your story. I love how you're empowering physicians' voices um, and also all healthcare providers, really, and, um, you know, helping to protect us from burnout. So thank you so much. Thank you for all the work you're doing. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. I I appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Um, like your ideal, like this is this is kind of what I envisioned, right? When I when I started this was having people like yourself, um, oh, good. who who've been there and who are still in it and still have passion for it and want people to to continue doing what they love, you know, and finding what works for them. That's good. So thank you. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes, and you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jennifergeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.